Have you noticed how sensitive we are these days to the self-esteem of kids? The joke in youth sports is that every kid gets a what? A, a trophy. Yeah, a participation trophy. That's right. You know, back when I was a kid, I, I, got, I think I got two trophies, and that's because I was on two championship teams. I valued those trophies, but now, downstairs, we have boxes full of my kids' trophies because they got a trophy every time they showed up. The next time I'm going to the dump, I'm taking those trophies with me because they don't mean anything to our kids. But there were other ways in which fragile young egos were ignored back in the day. I still carry scars of the trauma I experienced in my elementary PE and music classes. My phys ed teacher at Carl Sandburg Elementary School was a retired Marine with a crew cut, Mr. Wilson. I was terrified of him. He ran gym class like boot camp. I have this vivid memory of the day that we had to climb the ropes. Remember those right in the middle of the gymnasium? Uh, so that was the assignment for the day, and we had to go up and down the rope twice, and I could only go up the rope halfway once. And when I came back down, Mr. Wilson met me there. Sitters, what are you doing down here? I said, I, I, I just can't get all the way up, Mr. Wilson. Hogwash, you get up that rope. No, I, I can't do it. Go. And up I went. All the way to the top. Twice. I learned that day how powerful pent-up rage can be. <laughs> uh, and I also have this this nightmarish memory of being in this large music class in fourth grade. I remember it was like tiered, and there was, must have been a hundred fourth graders in there, and for some reason, the music teacher singled me out and asked me to sing alone. If you have ever heard me sing, then you know how that went. I was utterly humiliated. How likely is, some, is it that something like that's going to happen these days? We're, we're, way, we're way more sensitive these days to the fact that no one is good at everything. And I think that we're better at guiding students toward their natural gifts rather than forcing them to do things that they're just not good at. But, of course, there's a tension in that because success in life requires a balance between doing what we do best and doing the best we can at those things that we're not naturally good at. And that's also true in our spiritual life. I love that God has given all of us spiritual gifts, unique abilities to serve others in a powerful way. And He wants us to fan those gifts into flame. But there are also spiritual disciplines that we all need to practice no matter how unnatural they may feel to us. And one of those spiritual disciplines is prayer. Romans 12 says, be faithful in prayer. Colossians 4 says, devote yourselves to prayer. 1 Thessalonians 5 says, pray without ceasing. So we can't just opt out of it. We can't say, well, I, I don't do prayer. Now, there are some people for whom prayer is as natural as, as breathing, but asking others to pray is kind of like asking someone who is tone deaf to sing in music class. If I'm being honest, I'm, I'm probably somewhere between those two extremes. Like if I'm at a meal and I'm asked to say grace, which by the way happens every time I'm at a meal because like who else is supposed to say grace rather than the preacher? And, and I can do it even though I would have to admit it's not really in my comfort zone. Now, if Joe and I are at a meal together, I will take the initiative 
to ask Joe to say grace <laughs> because he's a much better prayer than I am. But most Christians that I know are not super confident about their prayer life. I mean, they know they should pray. They wish they were better at it, but they just don't think it's ever going to be one of their strengths. Oh, they'll pray when there's a crisis. We all saw that when DeMar Hamlin, the Buffalo Bills safety, suffered a cardiac arrest on the field on January 2nd. Who didn't pray that night? The entire Bills team took a knee. An ESPN analyst led a prayer on live television. Nobody talked about the separation of church and state that night. Everybody just prayed because that's what we do when we have nowhere else to turn. And crisis praying is biblical. James 5.13 says, Is any one of you in trouble? Let them pray. The book of Psalms is filled with crisis prayers. Jesus himself prayed face down in the dirt with sweat falling to the ground like drops of blood when he was in anguish over the prospect of being crucified. The disciples prayed when they needed God's guidance or protection. Paul and Silas prayed when they were thrown in jail. Irreligious sailors prayed when they were in danger of a shipwreck. The New Testament teaches us to pray when we're sick or, in, or we're anxious or we're in danger. And, and all these different kinds of prayers, you know, we can't help but pray when we're desperate for God's help. But when the crisis passes, do we keep praying? Yes, we all pray reactively, but how many of us pray proactively? For those of us who are not prayer natives, this is where discipline has to kick in. And the first wall that I think a lot of us hit when we set out to make prayer a habit is that of content. We just don't know what to pray for. Whether we're praying for ourselves or for others we care about, we just draw a blank. I mean, there's no crisis, so what do, what do I talk to God about? Well, Jesus knew that we would, we would be like that, and I think that's why he gave us that little starter prayer that we call the Lord's Prayer. It's in two different Gospels, in two different contexts. The shorter version is in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11, and it's Jesus' response to a request by one of his prayer-challenged disciples. That disciple had just seen Jesus praying alone, and there was such a wide gap between how he did it and how they did it, that the disciple asked Jesus to teach them how to pray. And this is what Jesus said in response. When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. That was it. Five sentences, 30-some words. And it's perfectly acceptable to um, pray that prayer word for word. Notice, Jesus said, when you pray, say. Now, obviously, you don't want to do it mindlessly. You don't want to do it superstitiously. But if you're just looking for words with which to talk to God about things that He cares about, you can't do any better than this. I mean, this is prayer 101. The other time um, Jesus taught this same prayer was in the Sermon on the Mount, only there he said, this is how you should pray. So it, it's more than just something to memorize. The Lord's Prayer is also a, a template. It's a, like a, an outline, like a mind map. 
You can put almost any prayer request under one of these umbrellas. Worship, God's kingdom, daily needs, forgiveness, and spiritual warfare. If you are looking for a place to start making prayer a habit, I recommend the Lord's Prayer. But most of us have been praying the Lord's Prayer for a long time now. At some point, you have to go to the next level. And I think the prayers of the Apostle Paul are a great next step. See, he prays at length for his readers in at least three of his letters. He does it in Philippians, he does it in Colossians, and here in Ephesians, he does it twice. I say here in Ephesians. I don't think I mentioned at the beginning that we're studying the book of Ephesians, chapter 1. We're going to look in at, at verses in chapter 1 and chapter 3 because those are the two places where Paul prays for those uh, that he's writing to. Of all his New Testament letters, this is the one in which he tells us the most about what he prays for others. And, and he's doing more than just praying. He's really teaching us how to pray. He's modeling for those of us who draw a blank or get stuck when we pray what we can add to the Lord's Prayer to help one another not just get out of a jam, but to actually experience a more fulfilling and more fruitful Christian life. We actually prayed these two prayers for each other back on January 1st when we kicked off our series on Ephesians, but today I want us to slow down and, and zoom in on some of the details. So start reading in verse 15 of chapter 1, where Paul writes, for this reason, for, for what reason? Well, because God chose us to be part of His family. Paul says to his readers, I, I realize that God has chosen you to be part of the same family that I am in, and, and so for this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And now here's what he prays for. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the Spirit, or, or better, a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. So what was Paul's prayer request? Stripped down to the bare bones. Well, he was asking God to give his readers knowledge. Knowledge was a big deal to Paul. Read his prayers in Philippians 1 and Colossians 1, and you'll see it there too. Paul believed that knowledge is of critical importance for those who follow Christ. But it's not book knowledge. It's not the kind of knowledge that smart or studious people are most likely to acquire. It's knowledge that is only available to those in whom the Spirit of God lives, Christians. That's why Paul begins by praying that God would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation. He's not asking God to give us the Holy Spirit because we already have the Holy Spirit. He's already living inside of us. Paul taught that very clearly in, in this book, in 2 Corinthians, and Romans 8, he said, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they don't belong to Christ. We have the Holy Spirit in us. 
But now he's praying that the Spirit that is within us will reveal wisdom to us that non-Christians simply cannot access. Okay, so why does he want us to have that wisdom? He says right there in verse 17, so that we may know God better. And the Greek word that Paul uses for knowledge there, so that you may know him, that means relational knowledge. He's talking about experiential knowledge. He's talking about intimate knowledge. It's the kind of knowledge you have when you are no longer saying, I know a lot about God, but rather, I know God. I used to work in a church where I was one of 12 pastors. And we also had uh, 12 lay elders. That Lay means that they didn't get paid. They were volunteers. So we had 12 pastors, 12 elders, and it was kind of structured in sort of a way that every pastor got linked up with an elder so that we could have you know, that personal encouragement and accountability with one another. Well, one of our elders was um, kind of a celebrity. He was a local news anchor on one of the major TV networks. And so, you know, people in the church would see him and they go, oh, there's, there's so-and-so. They knew him for, for, from a distance. They, they'd seen him on TV. And that's kind of the way that I related to him until I got paired up with him. And so now, all of a sudden, I had a relationship was someone that I used to recognize but didn't really know. It was so fascinating to me to go out and sit at a restaurant with him and have a meal together because these people, these total strangers, would come up and they would, they would go, oh, I, you, know, I, I, you know, you have people acting in the presence of somebody that they, you know, thinks a celebrity. I, I saw you on TV. And my friend John would always, I think just because he had fun doing this, he'd always introduce them to me. And the people would go, oh, okay, yeah, but I just love you on TV. You know, they'd always just totally ignore me. And after they were done fawning over him and they walked away, then we would get back to having a conversation about very deep and personal things. See, these other people knew some things about him, but I knew him. Well, Paul wanted those whom he prayed for to know God like that. Why? Well, do you remember when Jesus was praying for his disciples the night before he died? He said to God the Father, now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That word know there, it's the same root word that Paul used. Jesus was talking about intimate, experiential, relational knowledge. That same word was used in the Greek translation of Genesis 4.1 where the King James Version says, Adam knew Eve and she conceived. That's the word that Paul and Jesus used when they talked about knowing God. It's not sexual, obviously, but it is intimate. Jesus said that to know God intimately is eternal life. That is... It is life of the quality that we will experience throughout eternity. To know God is to experience life at its best, he said. So isn't this a great proactive prayer request? Paul prayed for other Christians that they would know God like that. But there's more than one kind of knowledge. Um, there's, there's relational knowledge, but there's also factual knowledge. The priority of knowing God 
does not negate the value of knowing other God-related truth. If we want to live the most fulfilling and fruitful life possible, there are some facts that we need to know, not just intellectually, but also spiritually. In other words, there are some truths that we need to have like, moved from our head into our heart. Somehow the Spirit of God has to transport that knowledge down to that place in our lives where it makes a real difference in the way that we live. And so in verse 18, Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know. Now stop there. It's a different Greek word for know. It means factual knowledge. Knowledge of what is true, what is rock solid, what is unchanging even when we go through emotional ups and downs. And there are three things that Paul wants all Christians to know the facts about. First, our hope. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which God has called you. Now, hope is another one of those words that means something different in the Bible than it does in the dictionary. When we say, I hope, usually we're, we're talking about wishful thinking. I hope that this will happen. I'm not sure that it will, but I hope it does. But biblical hope is an assurance, a certainty that in the future God will do what He has promised. So think about all those promises that have not yet been fulfilled. In most of what God has promised us, we're still waiting for. He promised us uh, that we will never die. He promised us that Jesus would come back uh, to, for us, that He will take us to the place that He has prepared for us in a new heaven and a new earth where there's no more tears, no more pain, no more suffering of any kind, just feasting on His abundance and drinking from His river of delights. Scripture says that He will fill us with joy in His presence, with eternal pleasures at His right hand. Just a small sampling of what our future holds. It's our hope. And to the extent that all that truth filters down from our head to our heart, we will experience the trans-circumstantial. Trans you know what I mean by that? We will experience, despite what's going on in our lives, joy and peace that God wants us to have. And then the second thing that Paul wants us to know about is encap encapsulated in that word inheritance in verse 18. And the New Testament talks a lot about our inheritance, uh, which 1 Peter 1 says is being kept in heaven for us and can never perish or spoil or fade. Well, that's great. But for the longest time, I couldn't figure out how our inheritance is different than our hope. It just seemed to me like Paul was repeating himself. But then I noticed that he's not talking about our inheritance. He's talking about God's inheritance. You see it? I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the riches of His glorious inheritance in His holy people. He is talking about to use the words that he used four verses earlier in verse 14, God's redemption of those who are his possession. And who might that be? That's us. We are God's possession. He purchased us with his own blood, but he has not yet taken full possession of us. That's something that he is still looking forward to. 
Just as we are looking forward to our hope, God is joyfully anticipating His inheritance. Paul prayed that the Spirit of God would enlighten us to the fact that God is looking forward to having us home with Him in heaven. Isn't that great? And third, Paul prayed that we would know about God's incomparably great power for us who believe. And that's not a future reality, that's a present reality. Right now, incomparably great power is available to us as believers. How much power? Well, keep reading, middle of verse 19. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. Stop there. How much power does it take to raise someone from the dead? More or less power than you need to face your biggest challenge. Keep reading because he goes on. He didn't just raise Jesus from the dead. He seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. I think he's probably referring to demonic powers. He's saying that Jesus sits above all the powers of evil. Verse 22, And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. What does it mean that the church is the fullness of Christ? It just means that Jesus himself fills the church. He is with us right now. He is in us. He fills us. Jesus, the one who did what nobody else could do, the one who had miraculous power, is in you right now. Has your heart been enlightened to the fact that you have all the power you need to do everything God wants you to do? And we could just go so deep into this, we could talk about all kinds of different things in the New Testament that we have the power to do, um, just based on a word study of the words that are used for power in these verses, I came up with a short list of five different things that we have the power to do. Second Peter 1 says that we have the power to live a godly life. See, we often feel like uh, we're powerless against some kind of sin in our life. It's one of the biggest lies that the evil one tells us. Oh, you're never going to get out of that. You're stuck. Well, that's not what the Scripture says. The Scripture says that we have everything we, we need to live a godly life. First, uh, Philippians 4 says that we have the power to live... Uh, above our circumstances, to thrive in, in any situation, to be content no matter what's going on because we can do all things through Him who gives us strength. And then there are three different passages in 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 3, 1 Timothy 1. They all talk about the power that we have to serve others in a unique way. See, you have inside of you right now, you, there's some special ability that God has given you that's not natural, it's actually supernatural. And when you do that, when you use that gift to serve other people, God works through you in, in a, a way that goes beyond anything we could do with human strength. And Acts 1 and 2 Timothy 1 both teach us that we have the power to share the gospel boldly. So we, we're not doomed to guilty silence. God can give us the strength that we need to speak up when the opportunity arises. And, and Ephesians 6 says that we have the power to withstand, withstand demonic attacks. Yes, demons are stronger than we are, but they are not stronger than the one who lives in us. These are just a few examples of how the same power that raised Jesus from the dead 
can make a real difference in our lives. So do you see why knowledge matters? See, knowledge of the truth is what renews our mind and therefore transforms our lives. If we did not know the hope that we have and the inheritance that we are and the power we have, we would live far below our potential. Most of you know the name William Randolph Hearst. He was a very wealthy newspaper publisher and politician who lived in an opulent California mansion that was filled with priceless art. Well, I heard a story um, that I, I have been trying to confirm, and I can't find it anywhere, but it was told by many of his contemporaries. They say that once he became obsessed with a particular piece of art, and he felt that he had to have it, no matter what the cost. And so he took one of his employees, somebody that worked with art, and he said, I want you to find this thing. I don't care where it is in the world. I don't care how much it costs. I want it. And after months of investigating, this employee came back to him and said that the treasure had been found. But he said, Mr. Hurst, you cannot purchase it. Why not, he said. I'll pay any price. The employee said, you can't buy it because you already own it. It was found in one of the many unopened crates in his art warehouse. I think that too many of us are unaware of all that we possess as Christians. And because of that, we miss what we should enjoy. And so Paul's just saying, I want you to have this, this life-giving knowledge, intimate knowledge of God and factual knowledge about the amazing future that awaits us and the unlimited power that is available to us. So if you want to pray proactively for yourself or for another Christian and you, you get through the Lord's Prayer and you still have some gas left in your tank, go straight to Ephesians 1 or Ephesians 3 because Paul prays a second prayer there that is just as powerful. Look at it with me, beginning in verse 14 of chapter 3. For this reason, again, uh, he's, saying, he, he's basing this on something, and the, and the for this reason before this verse is that, that God has made those of us who are Gentiles His chosen people. We talked about that um, last week. It actually fills the whole last half of chapter 2 and the whole first half of chapter 3. There's this, this idea that non-Jews, shockingly, are included in the family of God. So for this reason, because you are now my brothers and sisters, Paul says, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray, here it is, that out of His glorious riches He may strengthen you with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's people to grasp how wide and how long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. So in chapter 1, Paul prays for knowledge of, among other things, our power. And here in chapter 3, he prays for power to acquire knowledge. How's that for a brain teaser? And he prays that the Spirit of God will give us the power to acquire two different kinds of knowledge. First, relational knowledge. Remember how he prayed in chapter 1 that we would know God better? Not just acquire more information about Him, but know Him intimately. 
Well, how's this for intimacy? I pray that out of His glorious riches, He may strengthen you with power through His Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That word dwell means to live somewhere permanently, to make your home there. Paul wants the Spirit of God to create in our inner being, in our heart, a dwelling place for Jesus, a place where He can be at home, a place where He can stay always. There's a great little booklet called My Heart, Christ's Home, and that's what Paul's praying our heart will be. Here I am, Jesus said in Revelation 3. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. In John 14, Jesus spoke of the possibility of both Him and God the Father making their home with us, not later on in heaven, but right now in our heart. This is what Paul is praying for. And then he again prays for factual knowledge, middle of verse 17. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people, which includes us, by the way. So now the Apostle Paul is praying for us. So that that we may have the power to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. Doesn't that remind you of Romans 8 where Paul wrote that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the truth that Paul wants us to grasp. He's asking God to enable us to understand not just up here but down here how immeasurably Jesus loves us. The fact of it was proven when he died for us. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. But even though Jesus did that for us, some of us still haven't made the connection. We don't grasp how much he loves us. Paul wanted that factual knowledge to transform our lives. He wanted us, verse 19, to know this love that surpasses knowledge. And now again, he's using relational terminology. Uh, I want you to grasp the love of Jesus. More than that, I want you to experience his love. That's the word for know in verse 19. I want you to feel his love. I want you to be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. I want you to be conscious of, to be undone by, to be ecstatic about to be enraptured by the love of God that fills you to the brim. God is love. And if we do not know that, if it does not penetrate to the point that we experience it, we are not yet living the Christian life that God had in mind. What could be a better proactive prayer request for you or for someone you love than for the reality of God's love to be something that you and they feel? On a Sunday evening in October of 1821, Charles Finney got fed up with feeling distant from God. Even though he was a committed church member, he didn't believe that he was a Christian, and so he decided to pray until his salvation was no longer in doubt. He prayed all that night, and the next day, and the next. Finally, on Wednesday morning, 
The eyes of his heart were enlightened to the fact that salvation is a free gift. It's not by works. And he accepted that gift gratefully. But he didn't stop praying. He went out into uh, some woods that he had often taken a walk in before, and he, he, he did so because he wanted to pray out loud. And once he got there, he thought that he heard somebody else in the woods, and so he clammed up, and um, he... And, he was reminded of Jeremiah 29 where the Lord says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And he decided, I don't care who hears me. I'm going to seek God. And he started praying out loud again. He returned home and he prayed into the evening. And it was on that Wednesday night that he says he encountered the unmistakable presence of Jesus. He wrote in his journal, the Holy Spirit descended upon me in a manner that seemed to go through me, body and soul. I, I could feel the impression like a wave of electricity going through and through me. Indeed, it seemed to come in waves and waves of liquid love, for I could not express it in any other way. It seemed like the very breath of God. No words can express the wonderful love that was shed abroad in my heart. I wept aloud with joy and love. These waves came over me and over me and over me, one after the other, until I cried out, I shall die if these waves continue to pass over me. The prayer that the Apostle Paul prayed for all Christians was answered in the life of Charles Finney that night. Finally, he felt the love of God. Do you want to feel it? Pray for it. Do you want someone that you love to feel it? Pray for them. Pray fervently and persistently until you and they are filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now, you might wonder, which comes first? We've looked at these two different prayers. So, should I pray for knowledge or should I pray for power? The, the, the knowledge of God's power or the power to know God? I don't know. I, I, it's, a, it's a kind of a mystery to me, and I've come to kind of see Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 3 like a prayer snowball. So you just start, I'd say start with whatever the felt need is. Like, what do you think that person needs the most? Start praying for that. Continue to pray. So if it's, a, if it's an Ephesians 3 prayer, fine. If it's an Ephesians 1 prayer, fine. But just keep on praying. So you're praying Ephesians 1, Ephesians 3, and that snowball will grow. As you continue to pray both of those prayers, that person will come to understand and experience both God's love and His power. And I just couldn't think of any better way to finish this message than by praying that very prayer for us. So um, why don't you just bow your heads with me and we'll pray this right now. And God, we um, use the words of Scripture in prayer right now because we believe that we're praying in your will, but we don't do it mindlessly. We do it knowing that this is the very best thing that we can ask you. We pray that you will give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we might know you better. We pray that the eyes of our heart will be enlightened to the hope that you have called us to and to the riches of your glorious inheritance in your holy people and to your incomparably great power for us as believers. We pray that out of your glorious riches you will strengthen us with power through your spirit in our inner being so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. 
And we pray that all of us who are rooted and established in your love may have the power to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that we might be filled to the measure of all your fullness. In Jesus' name, amen.